2007, September 28th. Today is Lecture 8, Phases of the Moon. So up to this point, we have been talking only about the Earth and the appearance of the moon and the stars as they rise in the east and set in the west and as the sun moves around the sky through the course of the year along the ecliptic. And yesterday we took a little detour to talk about how those changes of the position of the sun across the sky is the driver of the seasons. Now I want to add a little bit of complexity on today. I want to talk about the moon and actually talk about the observable properties of the moon, the phases of the moon. So today's lecture is entitled, of course, The Phases of the Moon. The key ideas today is, first of all, that the moon always keeps the same face towards the Earth. No matter when I see it, no matter what phase it's in, I always see the same pattern of surface features. And the reason for that is the moon is rotating and revolving. Revolution means an orbit. So it's, revolving, it's rotating and revolving at exactly the same rate so as to always keep the same face towards the Earth. We'll say a little bit about that in detail here in just a moment. We'll then talk about the appearance of the moon over the course of its orbit, the so-called phases of the moon. This is the fraction of the sunlit face of the moon that is visible to us at any given time during the month. Now, it turns out that this is the first real compound motion we have had to deal with because it depends upon not just the position of the Earth and the moon, but the Earth, moon, and sun. So we're dealing now with a three-body configuration, and life's going to get a little bit more complicated. This is, the fact that it's a three-body configuration is going to lead us to two different time scales being of importance. When we talked about the stars rising and setting, we just had one time scale, the 24-hour rise and set cycle of the, of the rotation of the Earth. When we talked about the motion of the sun, we had the one-year cycle of the sun moving around the ecliptic. But now we're going to have two compound motions, the moon orbiting the Earth and then the Earth-Moon system orbiting together around the sun. And that's going to lead to two different timescales. The so-called sidereal period, which is the period of, of the orbit of the moon with respect to the stars, which is 27.3 days. And the synodic period, which has to do with the time from new moon to next new moon. The time covered by the cycle of phases is 29 and a half days. So it's the first time we've seen what are called non-commensurate timescales here because there's two compound motions going on. We're going to see a lot more of these as we add an extra layer of complexity next week and talk about the motions of the planets. So we'll start out simple with the apparent motions across the sky and the change of appearance of our neighbor, the moon. Now, one of my goals in this class in teaching this thing, other than just teaching astronomy, is to kind of try to change the way you look at the world. This doesn't mean I'm trying to you know, indoctrination or anything like that. What I'm really trying to do is just make you sort of think a little bit more about what the astronomical world around you looks like, to pay attention to some of the astronomical things in our everyday world. Here's a good illustration of what I mean. How many of you saw the moon this morning? Just show of hands, how many saw the moon this morning? Yeah, it's like one or two. If I'd asked that question about 200 years ago, every hand would have gone up. So one of the things that's an oddity of our modern age, we are a very sophisticated society, and yet we are increasingly detached from the everyday phenomena in the sky. In fact, you could see the moon towards the uh, west this morning. It actually was going to set a little bit after, yeah, about maybe 9 o'clock this morning or so. It was in a phase just past full moon. Now, I, cannot bl I can't blame you for not seeing the moon the last few nights because it's been raining, but the moon was visible last night. We've all seen the moon. You've all seen the moon many times, hundreds of times. 
But have you actually really looked at the moon and actually really thought about why it looks the way it is? Can you imagine by looking at it how the moon looks as an actual body orbiting around the Earth? But let's approach that from a different direction. Let me ask you a series of questions. That See how many of these you know the answer to. Now, this is not a clicker question. It's just a series of a list of questions I made up. I made up eight. Is the moon always the same size in the sky? Does it get bigger or smaller? Is it always about the same size? Number two, does the moon rotate? Yes or no? Three, when does the full moon rise and set? What time of day would you expect to see the full moon rising in the east? And what time should it set in the west? Any old time? Is it something so complex I need a computer? Or is it simpler than that? Number four, do you ever see a crescent moon at midnight? Ever see a movie where someone shows the crescent moon at midnight or maybe a painting that's supposed to be deep at night? Do you see a crescent moon there? Is that something a person could paint from life or is it, is it not? Do you ever see a full moon during broad daylight? Meaning high in the sky in the south, you see the full moon just up there in the sky. How long is a lunar month? How much time does it take to go from new moon to new moon? What is that number? When, do you, when you see the moon in a particular constellation, like you may see the moon up in the constellation of Gemini, when are you going to see the moon there again? Is it going to be one lunar month later or a different time scale? And the final question is, when you do see the moon in that same constellation again, is it going to be the same phase? So let's say I walked out on some nice clear night, and I look up and there's a beautiful first quarter moon right in the middle of the constellation of Gemini. When I come back and see the moon in the constellation of Gemini again, is it going to be first quarter phase again as well, or some other phase? How many of you think you could answer all eight of these questions right now? How many think you could answer maybe seven of them? Six, five, four, three, two, one. Oh, nothing blasted off. Okay. Most of you think you can answer half of them. I'm going to actually bet that most of you could only answer one or two of these, and at least one of these, because I actually give you the answer while doing the, the key ideas today. By the end of this lecture, you will know the answer to all eight. And in particular, I want these to be just a starting point question. Ask yourself these questions all the time. Next time you see the moon, ask yourself, what's it going to look like tomorrow or a month from now or later? I want you to start watching the moon. And today is we're going to show you what to start looking for. The moon is our nearest neighbor in space. After the sun in the sky, the moon is the brightest celestial object. It's the easiest thing to see. It can always be seen from anywhere on the nighttime or daytime side, wherever hemisphere of the Earth you are on where the moon is actually visible. The moon is a natural satellite of the Earth. We're going to learn a lot more about it as a physical satellite later. It turns out it follows an elliptical orbit. It is not in a circular orbit around the Earth. The deviation from circular is small. It's only about a fifth. 0.15%, but that's enough to have a visible manifestation. Furthermore, the moon's orbital plane is neither aligned with the equator of the Earth nor with the ecliptic. It's actually tilted by five degrees from the ecliptic plane. Now, this is actually something important, something we'll, we're going to touch on later once we've learned a little bit more physics of astronomy. But I'll just simply tell you this is a fact. The moon actually doesn't orbit around the Earth in the sense of being completely controlled by the Earth's gravity. The moon actually orbits the sun. Now, I'm not going to justify that today. I'm going to toss that crazy statement out there. 
And part of the knowledge of this is, in fact, the moon is more attuned to the ecliptic, to the sun-moon line, than it is to the sun-earth line. But if you were to look at it from the side, and I've exaggerated the scale only a little bit just to make it visible, if I drew a line from the sun to the earth, from center of the sun to center of the earth, the moon is tilted by five degrees above or below that plane, this plane of the ecliptic. The moon is only about a half a degree across in round numbers, so in fact the moon can either be above or below the ecliptic by about plus or minus five degrees, so there's a broad band around the ecliptic where the moon can be found at any given time. That's going to be of more importance to us next week, that fact, when we talk about eclipses of the sun and moon. Here's an exaggeration of the ellipticity of the moon's orbit. The Earth and Moon here are shown roughly to scale, but not in distance scale. The actual mean distance of the Moon to the Earth at any given time, the average, is about 380,400 kilometers. That's a big number. The only number I really want you to know is it's about 60 times the radius of the Earth. So the Moon is about 60 Earth radii away. That's kind of a good number you should always sort of keep in the back of your mind there. At perigee, para meaning close, g from geo meaning the Earth, at perigee, the point of nearest approach to the Earth, it's 363,000 kilometers in round numbers. Again, these aren't super important numbers to you right now. And at apogee, as far away as it ever gets, it's a little over 405,000 kilometers. So you can see this average of about 384,000 kilometers encompasses a pretty big range. The total range of lunar distance from nearest to farthest, furthest, furthest, varies by about 42,200 kilometers. That's a lot. That's many diameters of the moon. The moon's only about 3,000 kilometers in diameter, 3, 4,000 kilometers in diameter. So the moon actually moves quite a bit from furthest to nearest. That's sufficient that you could actually see that if you had a good measuring machine. Okay. The amount of difference this fractional, this 40,000 kilometers makes out of about 400,000 kilometers means that the moon is going to be approximately 11% larger in the sky at perigee than apogee. Now, 11% is not a lot, but it's measurable. So the moon actually does appear a different size in the sky from one time to the next, depending upon whether we are at perigee, when we're closest, and it appears biggest in the sky, or apogee, when we are furthest from the Earth, and it is smallest in the sky. But that difference is subtle. Now, this is a, this is a lovely photograph taken by uh, a man by the name of Cedado. He's a, he's a Portuguese um, amateur astronomer. And it shows oops, the Earth, uh, sorry, the Moon at apogee and perigee. So perigee is when it's close and it's bigger. Apogee is when it's smaller. So when you lay them side by side like this, and, and you now draw a circle around the Moon at apogee and put it over there, you can now see what 11% actually means. So this would be very hard to see with the naked eye. In fact, this was actually fairly difficult to measure. Um, a Greek astronomer, for example, the name of Hipparchus of Rhodes, who we're going to meet a little bit in coming lectures, worked out a couple of instruments for actually making this kind of measurement. It's a very challenging measurement to make because the eye can only sense things down to about one or two minutes of arc of angle and this, the moon is only about 30 minutes of arc across. So it's a very challenging measurement to make. There's an illusion that you sometimes get when the full moon is rising in the distance and there's a lot of foreground stuff. How many of you have seen the giant moon? Yeah, it just looks huge out there. It looks like, wow, I never knew the moon was that big. Next time you see that, 
hold your thumb out at arm's length and cover the moon with your thumb. And notice how big the moon is relative to your thumb, and it will look pretty small. You can actually cover your moon with the, the moon with your thumb, depending on how big your thumb is, of course. And then wait a few hours for the full moon to get high in the sky and do the same thing, and it'll be exactly the same size. What's happening, why the moon appears so huge, we actually don't know. Per, uh, scientists who study human perception do not understand why that particular illusion comes into play. It may have something to do with your brain being fooled because there's foreground stuff that you see the moon against when it's on the horizon, but when it gets up in the sky, there's nothing between you and the moon, and so your brain says, oh, yeah, it's small and way the hell far away. So it really is a mystery. Um, people who study human perception never have an understanding of this. So it's totally an illusion. It's just you're basically the, the image processor in your brain screwing up. But there is a real change in the size of the moon. It's just very, very subtle, and it's due to the ellipticity of its orbit around the Earth. It's closer at perigee and further at apogee. Now, the other observed fact of the moon is, as you watch it, night after night, week after week, year after year, you always see the same face of the moon towards you, the same patterning of the dark seas and the light areas and highlands. You never see the backside of the moon. The reason for this is that the moon's rotation and its orbit are perfectly synchronized in such that the, earth, the moon completes one complete rotation for every complete rotation around the earth. So I'm going to take a geocentric perspective where I'm going to say the moon is orbiting the earth. I'm going to say, how fast is the moon rotating versus its rate of, rota rate of orbit? And the answer is they're perfectly commensurate. Because they're perfectly commensurate, one-to-one, -one, the moon always keeps the same face towards us. The face towards us is called the near side. The face, the other hemisphere that is always pointed away from the Earth, is called the far side. You may have heard the term dark side of the moon and light side of the moon. There is no dark side of the moon. It's all dark, to quote the uh, famous rock and roll album. But in precise, there's really a far side of the moon. There is one half of the, hu of the lunar hemisphere that no human being has ever seen with their own eyes before the Apollo space flights. We've gotten pictures returned by satellites, but no human being standing on the Earth has ever seen the far side of the moon for themselves. You have to travel behind the Earth to see that. Now, the reason for this strong synchronization is not a cosmic accident. It's actually caused by the effect of tides, gravitational tides, between the Earth and the Moon. When we talk about tides later in the class, we're going to come back to this point. This is an example of what's known as a one-to-one -one spin orbit resonance. We're going to see such coincidences of whole number ratios of rotation periods and orbital periods throughout the solar system where tides play a role. It's one of the very important processes that occur in the dance of the planets. Now, I want to emphasize this idea that there's an illusion occurring here that would make you think, well, I'm always seeing the same face of the moon. I don't have a moon, but I have Marvin here. It's close enough. And Marvin does have a face. So that gives me at least I can tell, you know, Marvin front from Marvin back. We're all set. I'm going to hold Marvin so that Marvin is now orbiting me. And he's going to orbit me in such a way as to always keep one face towards me. Okay, well, that's easy. I just sort of, Marvin and I are having a little stare down while I'm twirling around here in place. Now, notice that there's two motions going around. One is Marvin orbiting around me, and the other is Marvin turning once on his axis in that same time. If Marvin was not rotating, then Marvin's looking at me, but he's really looking at, say, that exit sign over there. And then as he orbits, 
He's always watching the exit sign. This is a bit tricky to do. You notice that Marvin appears to be turning from my perspective. He's not turning. He's standing still and I'm moving. There's two motions going on here in a synchronous motion. I have Marvin rotating around his axis once every, you know, however many seconds it takes me to turn around. And the whole body of Marvin is swinging around me. And the two are dancing together exactly. And so it looks like one motion, even though there are two. I can exaggerate this by, let's say, Marvin completed two orbits, two rotations in one orbit. Then what would happen is now it's pretty obvious Marvin's moving in rotation and he's orbiting around me. But when I make them perfectly commensurate, it looks like he's not moving at all. So there's a little bit of an illusion. Because we only see one, one face of the moon at any given time, because we only see one face of the moon, people think the moon doesn't rotate. It is rotating. It's rotating at exactly the same rate it's orbiting. Now, I seem to be dwelling on this a bit because when you get into these resonance situations, you can get very easily fooled by your perception of the motion. So it's a common misconception that the moon does not rotate. In fact, the moon rotates once every 28 odd days. Here's a picture of the moon. This is the lunar near side. This is the part we always see, the dark seas and the bright highlands. This is a beautiful photograph of the full moon from the Lick Observatory. The far side of the moon has only been seen by spacecraft or by the handful of astronauts who have orbited the moon. This is a beautiful photograph taken by the Galileo spacecraft that passed the moon on its way to Jupiter back in December of 1990. And the fact the far side of the moon looks very different, but you would never, ever see this from the Earth. Well, as the moon moves around the Earth, it's continually changing its configuration with respect to the sun. The moon does not produce any visible light of its own. It can produce some infrared light and a little bit of radio radiation because it's cold, but it doesn't produce any visible light all of its own. We only see it because it's got a relatively reflective surface and we see it illuminated by the sun. In fact, the surface of the moon is really, really dark. It's only 7% reflective. So of the sunlight that falls on most parts of the moon, something like 93-odd percent of the sunlight is absorbed and only 7% actually gets reflected off. The moon is pretty dark. There are differences. There are lighter regions and darker regions, the lighter highlands and the darker maria, the darker seas. But overall, the average is about 7%. In fact, if you look at photographs of the, of the Apollo astronauts, they had these wonderful white moon suits. When they came off of the moon, the dust and stuff that was sticking to them by static electricity, just, they were just black and sooty. It's a very, very dark place. And you really don't get that impression until you see it in contrast to something relatively bright. The astronaut's moon suit was kind of an off-white, kind of like a t-shirt that's been dirty for a while. Now, every month, as we watch the moon go around one orbit around the Earth, I see a complete cycle of phases. What a phase is, is, is what fraction of the sunlit side that I can see standing here on the surface of the Earth. The sunward hemisphere, the, the point on the moon where it's facing entirely towards the sun, is com in complete brightness, complete light. And the, the far side, the opposite hemisphere, sorry, not the far side, the opposite hemisphere, the anti-sunward hemisphere, is in darkness. The phase of the moon is simply that fraction that I can see. Okay, so all I'm seeing is the change to make a difference in the phase is I'm seeing the difference between where the Sun-Earth-Moon triangle is at any given point along its orbit. 
So here's a, a nifty movie. This is um, taken by taking a complete month worth of photographs of the moon. So we're observing what's called a complete lunation, a complete cycle of phases. And you can see a couple of things going on here. One is you can see the moon actually get bigger and smaller. Just happens to be at that this particular cycle of phases, that full moon is occurring near um, apogee, the furthest from the Earth, and the new moon is occurring near perigee. You'll also notice a little bit of a wobble going on. The moon is nodding a little bit, and it's kind of rolling a little bit side to side. Those are actual motions. Part of that is actually an artifact of the fact it's on a tilted elliptical orbit, and the other part is, in fact, there's a little bit of a parallax effect that you get as you get closer and further. So there's a couple things going on causing these nodding motions here. It's called libration. So the moon actually does rock back and forth. The reason for that rocking is actually part of the fact it's on an elliptical orbit. If the moon was on a perfectly circular orbit and its rotation was perfectly locked, then we would always match. But it turns out when you're on an elliptical orbit, you move a little bit faster in your orbit when you're close to the orbiting body, a little slower when you're further away, which means the moon rotates a little faster than its orbit when it's close, a little slower than its orbit when it's far away. And that gives me this kind of, you know, yes, you know, nodding my head no kind of nodding that you see on this here. You're actually seeing manifest the elliptical motion of the moon through this movie. This is a marvelous movie. Well, let's now stop this movie and go into freeze frames on each of these phases and see what's going on. The fundamental configuration we're dealing with is the line from the sun to the earth to the moon. I stand here on the earth, so my perspective as an observer is standing down here, but for this picture, I'm now looking at the earth from above. The rotation of the Earth is a right-hand rule, so you stick your thumb sort of out of the screen, as shown in this picture, and curl the fingers of your right hand this way. So you take your right hand up, thumb out, curl your fingers this way. That's the direction of the rotation of the Earth, the direction of the rotation of the Moon, and the direction of the orbit of the Moon around the Earth. So just sort of keep that right hand sensed in your mind while you're watching this. The simplest configuration is to simply have all of these lined up, so the Sun, er, sun the moon and the earth are all along one line with the moon between the earth and the sun. That's the phase we call new moon. And in fact, I can't really draw the, f the moon at that phase because it's basically in darkness. I only see the, the hemisphere that is visible to me, the near side of the moon, seen from the earth, is in complete darkness. And so the moon is literally dark. If I now move about a quarter of um, an eighth of the way around the orbit, so we're going to continue our orbit around here in sort of an, a counterclockwise fashion. I now move to this position, and now this moon is a little bit offset. It's offset by about 45 degrees, as shown here. And now you can see that that part of the moon that I can, moon's hemisphere that's visible to me, the near side, the best way to visualize it is the near side of the moon, the hemisphere I can see, is the part that's inside the circle of this orbit that I've drawn. So now you can see that most of the moon is still in darkness, but a very, very thin sliver here on one side, the sliver is on the sunward side. And so I end up with a crescent moon when I view this illuminated sphere from the surface of the Earth. And because it is growing, it is waxing, to use an old English word, and so we call it a waxing crescent. Moving another eighth of the way along, so now that the line from the sun to the Earth to the moon forms an exact right angle, I now see half the sun in sunlight, and, I'm sorry, half the moon in sunlight and half the moon in darkness. And so I get this effect of a half moon, 
But because I'm only able to actually see one quarter of the surface, I call that a quarter moon by convention. And because it is the first quarter moon that I see after new moon, it is called first quarter. Well, continuing along, another eighth of the orbit away, now the moon is starting to move behind the Earth, and now maybe three quarters of the surface of the moon is that um, in the nearby hemisphere is in sunlight, and the other quarter of the near hemisphere is in darkness. I don't see a complete open sphere, but I see a fairly well-filled-in sphere. It's growing fat. It's growing gibbous. And because it's waxing, we talk about it as a waxing gibbous. Finally, I end up with the configuration where the moon is on the opposite side of the sky from the Earth. Sorry, the opposite side of the Earth from the... That's right. The moon is on the opposite side of the Earth from the sun. Thank you. As I stand up here and look up at the moon, I see the near side fully illuminated. And of course, because it's fully illuminated, I call it full moon. They don't call it half moon because I see all that I'm ever going to see. The nomenclature here is kind of funny. It's all sort of a, it's all got a lot of history. There's a lot of old English in the way we, we speak of this stuff in English. Now I've gone through half of one cycle of the lunar phases. I now go through the rest of the cycle. We'll do it somewhat more quickly. Waning gibbous, now the moon is actually starting to be partially in darkness again, and I now see a waning gibbous moon. Waning because it is dying, again, an old English word. I now reach this position where the Sun-Earth-Moon line is again at 90 degrees, but on the other side of the orbit. It is the last quarter moon that I'm going to see before new moon, and I see again a half moon called last quarter. And finally, when I get down to the last eighth, the moon is slowly shrinking, it's waning away, until finally I see a waning crescent, and again, that crescent is on the sunward side of the moon. And then in another eighth of the, of the orbit, I will complete the cycle of the eight major phases. Now, we could, in fact, quantify the phase of the moon by the amount of time that has elapsed since exact new moon. It's often referred to as lunar age. But I think it's more convenient because how we perceive the moon is you can think of it as being in one of eight phases. New moon, waxing crescent, first quarter, waxing gibbous, full moon, and then waning gibbous, last quarter, and waning crescent. And the cycle of phases runs around this way. Waxing as it's growing, waning as it's shrinking away. Not shrinking in size, but shrinking in terms of the fraction of the sunlit side that you see. And this gives us the eight major phases of the moon. This is a picture you should all be able to draw for yourselves and be able to label at any given time. Especially, it's going to be useful for homework number five, on, on the homework, on homework question number five coming up. But it's also the sort of picture you should always be able to draw for yourself. Very useful. So there's a couple of different extreme configurations here. New moon and full moon are when we have the Earth, moon, and sun are lined up. And the difference is whether the moon is between the Earth and the sun or the moon is on the other side of the Earth from the sun. So new moon occurs when the moon and sun are on the same side of the sky as seen from the Earth. The near side is in complete darkness, and the moon and sun will appear to rise together. So as I stand out here facing south, I look off to the east. At new moon, the moon and the sun are on the same part of the sky together, and the moon and sun will rise together and set together more or less. They do start to move slightly apart over the course of the day, but not so much that I can see them. Because of the bright sunlight and the scattering of the atmosphere, it's very, very difficult to see the moon at new moon without special equipment. You can see it in the infrared, but you're not going to see it in visible light. 
Full moon is when we have the opposite configuration, where the sun is on one side of the earth and the moon is on the other. So as viewed from any location on the earth, the sun and moon are on opposite sides of the sky. In this case, the lunar near side is in complete sunlight, and so I see a fully, the fully illuminated near side of the moon, hence the name full moon. Because they're on the opposite side of the sky, they rise and set in exactly opposite each other. So as the moon is beginning to rise, the full, as the full moon rises, the sun is setting. And similarly, when I have full moon, I see full moon through the entire night, and as the moon sets, the sun begins to rise the next day. So I'm never going to see a full moon during the daytime, because full moon only occurs when the sun and moon are on opposite sides of the sky, so I only see the moon after the sun sets, and I only see the sun after the full moon has set itself. So the moon is up at night, the sun is up during the daytime when you're at full moon. So that gives you part of the clue for how you can predict when a moonrise or a moonset is going to occur if you know what phase it is. Or you could turn that around, you could say, I see the moon in a particular phase at a particular time. That's going to give you a predictor as to what phase it should be in, what time it should be able to be up. The other easy configuration to see is the quarter moon. In the quarter moon phase, the sun-earth-moon line is at exactly right angles. So that the moon is doing its thing around here, comes around, is when it's at 90 degrees approaching the sun or 90 degrees leaving the sun, I have first quarter and last quarter. Half of the near side is illuminated, half is in darkness, and we call it a quarter moon. The first quarter moon is the quarter moon that occurs between new moon and full moon. So as the moon is beginning to grow in brightness over the course of the lunar month, first quarter is the very first time as you see it grow into half illumination. Last quarter is between new moon, full moon, and new moon. And it is the last quarter that you see as the moon is beginning to shrink away towards new moon. So first quarter is the first one you see in the lunar month. Last quarter is the last quarter moon of the lunar month. Oops. The rise and set times are a little harder to see, and I'm going to draw a picture about that in just a second. Waxing and waning. Waxing is when you increase in illumination. So for example, a waxing crescent is the first crescent you see as you grow away from new moon. Waxing gibbous is the growing moon as it heads towards full moon after you've passed just before full moon, just as you pass quarter moon. And finally, waning. Waning is decreasing, or kind of just sort of wasting away. And so you first go through waning gibbous, which occurs just after full moon, and then finally waning crescent is the last phase you can see just before you go into new moon, and the moon vanishes from the naked eye for a couple of days. So these are the basic patterns of illumination through the different times. Now, as I've already alluded to when we talked about new moon and full moon, which are the easiest configurations to see, you do not see the moon at all times in the sky. You have to only see phases of the moon at very particular times because which phase of the moon you are is part of this big astronomical clock made up of the sun, earth, and moon. So, for example, you never see the crescent moon at midnight. For the crescent moon to be high in the sky at midnight, it would have to be on the opposite side of the sky from the sun. But if the moon's on the opposite side of the sky from the sun, it's full moon. The crescent moon always stays close to the sun in the sky. So you see the crescent moon, you see waxing crescent just after sunset, and then the moon sets very shortly thereafter. And you see the waning 
crescent moon just before sunrise. The moon, the crescent, waning crescent moon rises just before the sun rises early in the morning. So if you see a crescent moon in the evening, you immediately know it's a waxing crescent. And if you see the crescent moon in the early morning, you immediately know it's waning crescent. It's on its way towards new moon. You never see the last quarter moon at sunset because the last quarter moon is high in the sky after the sun, long after the sun is set. You also never see a full moon during the day, again, because it has to be on the opposite side of the sun from the sky, and since when the sun is above the horizon, the moon is always below the horizon, you never see the actual true full moon during the daytime. So there's a couple of more answers to the questions we posed earlier in class. The times of rising and setting depend upon this Earth-Sun-Moon configuration as viewed from the surface of the Earth. And this is viewed from the surface of a rotating Earth. So now the configuration is going to get a little more complicated. Okay, so let's look at rising and setting for the first quarter moon. So first quarter moon is the moon is moving around here counterclockwise, so it's in this configuration here. The Earth is rotating around counterclockwise. At noon, Noon occurs when as viewed from my position on the Earth. So my observer here is just conveniently on the equator. My observer sees the moon overhead, the sun, the sun overhead at noon. That's pretty much how you define noon. The sun is up overhead on the southern meridian in the sky. In that case, at, if the, at, at noon, the sun is overhead, but the moon, remember I'm rotating around this way, the moon will just be, be coming over my eastern horizon. So the first quarter moon rises at noon. Now if I wait um, six hours later, I'm now the Earth is rotated around a quarter of the way through its rotation, six hours. Now the sun is now on my western horizon, and I have sunset, but the quarter moon is now completely overhead. It's up on top of my meridian. Six hours later at midnight, now the sun is below my feet, to my observer here on the equator, and the moon is now just setting below my western horizon. Remember, I rotate towards the east, so Mr. Smiley here, Mr. Smiley's... Let's see, how can I do this? It's always tricky. That's left, that's east, that's... Okay, east is right, is... Yeah, I can't do this. <laughs> okay, that's east, that's west. So the moon is now setting below the western horizon, the sun is below your feet, and then by the time you get around to sunrise, the sun is coming up over the eastern horizon for Mr. Smiley, but the moon is now down below his feet and invisible below his horizon. So if you see the first quarter moon, at, if, you, if we wait at noon, if you know it's first quarter moon, you can walk outside and you can look towards the east. You should be able to see just after noon the quarter moon begin to rise. It's usually challenging to see the moon during broad daylight, but you could in fact see it. But if you wait until sunset, if you see the quarter moon high in the sky to the south at sunset, that tells you immediately, ah, that's first quarter. And then, of course, you can see the moon set at midnight. For full moon, we've done this example before, the sun, earth, and moon. At noon, the moon is below your feet. You don't see it. By Sunset, the moon, sun is setting in the west, the moon is just coming over your eastern horizon and rising. By midnight, the sun is below your feet and the moon is up overhead. And of course, by dawn, the sun is beginning to peak over the eastern horizon. The moon is sinking below your western horizon. So you only see the full moon at night. You never see the full moon during the daytime.
Okay. Let's take a quick stop here for a concept check. Let's see how we do it. Come on. Wake up. Clicker time. All right. Your housemate spent a nice evening <coughs> studying, comes home at sunrise and wanders in the door and says, Dude, I saw the moon. It was high in the sky in the south at sunrise. Without ever having to look outside, you can say, Oh, the moon phase was, is it A, full moon, B, waxing crescent, C, last quarter, D, waning crescent, or E, first quarter? Discuss it among yourselves here for a couple minutes. I've only got a couple minutes. See what you can get an answer to it. Okay, enter your answers. You have 10 seconds. Seven, six. Is anyone not able to get their answer in? Is anyone not able to click it in? Okay. Sorry? No, you only get one shot. Okay. Oh, oh no, wrong button. <laughs> Clicker. Okay. Well, you say it's full moon, waxing crescent, last quarter, waning crescent, first quarter. It is last quarter moon. You're standing outside. The sun is starting to appear above your eastern horizon. But remember, your sun, earth, moon line is 90 degrees. And so if the moon is above your horizon, of course, it's moving down towards the east, towards the sun, you are now in last quarter. Good. Very good. Come on. Now this difference of moon times, that was interesting. The difference of times here, the time for the moon to complete one orbit around the Earth with respect to the stars has a special name. It's called the sidereal period. The word sideria comes from the Latin word sidus, meaning stars. Turns out if you watch the moon against the background stars, and let's say you saw it in the constellation of Gemini, it will take 27.3 days for the moon to be back in the constellation of Gemini, for the moon to complete one full circuit with respect to the background stars. You measure this by matching, by doing this measurement, because you can actually see the moon against the stars at night. A full moon is challenging, but you can still do it. So, for example, on September 30th, you end up with waning crescent in Leo, but on October 26th, about 27.3 days later, you're going to end up with a waning crescent in Leo. So it's back in Leo, but it's gone from a thin waning crescent to a full waning crescent. So the phase has actually changed. So you've made one full cycle with respect to the stars, but you've overshot a little bit. Actually, you're, no, actually you're undershot the cycle of phases. So there's an additional motion going on here. So the sidereal period is measured with respect to the stars is 27.3 days. Sidereal periods are all we've been talking about previously. But now, here's an example of the moon here in two different constellations in Gemini, same background stars, but different phases. 
The synodic period is the time between successive new moons. The moon's synodic period is 29 and a half days compared to the 27 and a half days that we saw before for the sidereal period. It's also called a synodic month. The word synodic comes from the Latin word synod, which means a coming together. So when the moon and sun come together on the same side of the sky, that represents a new moon. The time between successive coming together is the time between successive synods is a synodic month. This is the month that we use in the cycle of phases, and this is the month of lunar calendars. For So, for example, in the Islamic calendar, where we are currently in the month of Ramadan, is reckoned from new moon to new moon. That is a synodic month astronomically. And we'll see this when we talk about calendars next week. So we watch for the appearance of the crescent moon. That time between those successive phases represents a single lunar month in the calendar, a so-called synodic month. Why are they different? They are different because in addition to the fact that the moon is orbiting the Earth, the Earth-Moon system is orbiting the Sun. So here I am at new moon on time t equals zero. And here I've come around to where I'm against exactly the same stars 27.3 days later. But now because the Earth has slid one month or about one twelfth of the way around its orbit to the side, the moon has not yet come back into new moon phase. So the moon has to go a little bit further, an extra nine, two and two and a point two days, in order for it to come back into alignment on the Earth-Sun-Moon line. Again, using Marvin, I've been doing the experiment with Marvin as the moon moving around like this. But in reality, as Marvin is moving around me, I am moving off to one side. So in order to come back to the same place, I have to turn an extra little bit with respect to the sun. So if I'm coming around, you're all the stars, and the sun is back there at the clock, and I am watching the clock. Here I am aligned with respect to the sun, and then back with the stars again. I've done it in a kind of opposite way. So I have to move a little bit extra to come back in alignment with the sun, because the Earth has swung a twelfth of the way through its orbit. So we see the first level of complication that's introduced by this because of these pairs of motions going on. So I'll just end with the slide. I apologize for hitting time. These are all the answers to the questions we asked at the beginning of class. We can now answer every single one of them. I'll see you all on Monday.